Hello, everybody. This is Todd Underwood from SIFT, the voice of the food industry, and you're listening to Food Stories, the podcast, the show that highlights the industry that keeps 330 million people fed in the U.S. and tells the story of the innovative people, companies, and organizations that keep the food flowing to our stores and restaurants. It's a program for people in the industry, as well as those who have an interest in how our food products are made and delivered with the highest quality and safety in mind. We would like to thank our sponsors who make this show and our other programming possible. They are the Regional Growth Partnership, or the RGP Northwest Ohio, the Heath Newark Licking County Port Authority, Ag Credit, Jobs Ohio, and the Ohio MEP. You can learn more about these impactful organizations in the links shared in the show description. Now, let me tell you about today's program. So we are here today with uh, Dan Wellert. He is the food epidemiologist. Uh, he is um, he, he eats and researches how our food came to be and what it is, starting with his hometown comfort foods, favorites from Midwestern Cincinnati. He uncovers the past and explains why good Gouda and has allspice and why lasagna has only four layers. You can journey with Dan to the roots of our favorite dishes by reading his blog, uh, The Food Epidemiologist, or one of his many books, including Historic Restaurants of Cincinnati, the Queen City's Tasty History, or Cincinnati Candy, A Sweet History, or finally the topic and the book we're going to be talking about today, um, The Authentic History of Cincinnati Chili. Um, so Dan, nice to nice to have you today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on your, uh, your uh, program. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm definitely going to be eating some Cincinnati chili this weekend after this. Yes. Sure. So, it goes um, well with football. So It does, it does. My kids are now addicted to three ways, so um they, awesome. they actually they actually request it. So I'm but I won't tell you what brand I use because I don't want to get in, I don't want to get anybody in trouble. But well, Dan, um, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, and what sparked your interest in food? And uh, if you just want to start with that. Yeah, sure. So um I describe myself as a, a little bit or a lot bit of a history geek. And so um I was kind of the the weird child that was interested in family history, and I think food history and family history go hand in hand. And, you know, you can trace sort of your family's roots through your grandma's recipe box or, you know, your mother's recipe box or your grandfather's famous eggnog recipe or something like that, because our food travels with us. And so, you know, our ancestors brought their food with them when they came to this country. We're all, you know, sons, daughters in great grandsons of immigrants. And so that, that cultural history stays with us, whether it's known or it's kind of in residue. And so what I try to do is I try to uncover those residues and understand why your family has eaten something weird, you know, some weird casserole for the last 75 years, um, because I think that's important. I think that's, that's part of our cultural heritage and it's important to understand where we come from through food because food is what keeps us alive. And, you know, food, uh, there's so many things about food today that are different from when our ancestors came that I think we should be more concerned about. You know, we're, we're so disconnected from where our food comes from these days. And Absolutely. search in our history helps us reconnect with that and to make our food better for us and for our kids and their kids. Awesome. And, and that's how you came up with etymology, right? Is that? Yeah. So et etymology is not to be confused with entomology. I don't okay. study eating bugs. Yep. Um, etymology is like the, the, um, 
the origin of a word or the origin of a food or something like that. Yeah, I thought that was really clever when I, I saw that when I went to your blog. I, I really like that. Was that just something you came up with on your own or um, was it inspired after writing for a while? Well, yeah, I, I mean, as a writer, you, you kind of try to find the, the roots of words. And so sure. similarly with food, you I try to find the roots of our food. So Awesome. Awesome. Well, just to give the, the listeners a little background, um, I have been interested in Ohio foods and I met Dan through a mutual friend, Roger from GSR, also Gold Star Chili, um, because of Cincinnati Chili. And it's one of the, I'll let you talk about, but it is one of the most unique foods to our region, not just Cincinnati, but the state. So what I'd like to, you've written a lot of books, you've written a lot of blogs. Can you tell me from a high level what inspired this particular book and this particular topic in particular? So you know, I've always, I grew up in around, in and around Cincinnati. And so, you know, Cincinnati chili is part of my DNA because I grew up eating it. And as a historian, I was very surprised as I started writing that no one had ever written a history of Cincinnati chili because there are so many chili, different chili parlors besides the obvious Skyline and Gold Star that are in Cincinnati. And I thought, well, that that's got to there's definitely some fascinating stories behind that so I started uh interviewing owners of chili parlors and ate a lot of chili for about a year and a half sounds and, like a tough uh, job yeah it was oh it was so tough um <laughs> but somebody had to do it yeah and I found I started uncovering these great family stories behind the chili and um awesome. so I thought this would make a great book and so it happened. <laughs> awesome. Well, let me back up because I know we're going to talk a lot about the Cincinnati Chili and its history, but I, as someone who dabbles in writing and as people who might be interested in this topic, when you got when you get this idea for a book, can you just give us a high level of what your process is when you begin writing this book and how you plan it out? Because I was amazed how detailed your book was, how many pictures there were. You must have a pretty interesting process when you launch this because it must be daunting. Um, to describe it as a process would probably be a little misleading because it, it's a lot of chaos. Okay. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe a process of chaos. Um, and by chaos, I, I mean, I just, you know, I started interviewing, um, you know, I, I like to use firsthand sources and, and talk to the people that are involved and, and people that have experienced what I'm writing about. And so, you know, in, in doing that, you kind of uncover these stories and you find these great pictures that you'll never find in any public archive, you know, family archives are just great for, you know, uncovered history, untold history, and nice. what I call the money, money shots of history, like the inside of the very first Cincinnati chili parlor. That is, we, we found that photo and that was just amazing because you can, you can, um, you know, you can, with digital technology, you can zoom in and, oh my God, that's a Frank's Red Hot Sauce bottle on the counter in awesome. 1923. That's a, eyeballed cigar box on the um the shelf behind and you know so you can do what i call photo archaeology oh that's um, awesome and, yeah and so at, as you start interviewing people and the stories kind of intersect then you learn more and you can um do deep dives into archives and things like that so the chaos does sort of come together <laughs> at the sure. end but but initially it is very chaotic because you're just trying to find out if Hey, is this a story that has some legs that can be, you know, expanded upon and put in an interesting format for people to, to read and enjoy? So, 
did you uh, did you have any trouble getting people to talk to you or is it is there some you know when it comes to these family things or were people pretty open no quite the opposite when you when people when you ask people to talk about their story they tend to be very open and you know you ask a couple of leading questions and get them in the you know in their zone and they they almost tell you anything you almost sometimes have to edit what they've told you you know and um, even to the extent that, you know, there's, there's all this sort of um, talk around secret recipes and what spices are in what chilies. And honestly, some of the folks, they nearly, you know, revealed the, the recipe to them. Like when I interviewed the owner of Dixie Chili, he took me into their secret spice room and he stopped me before we went in. It was like the, that scene in Willy Wonka yeah. where they enter the chocolate factory. And he's like, I'm telling you, you're one of like a handful of people not with our family name that has ever stepped into this room. Oh my God. So I felt I felt a little bit like sort of I'm not Greek or Macedonian. I'm Germanic. So I felt sort of like a consigliere, you know, <laughs> in godfather terms. Sure, sure. To these chili families. And it was spectacular. I still uh, keep in touch with many of the families and, you know, stop in and say hi. And it, it's just, you know this great relationship uh, formed with the people that I, that I spoke with that shared their story. So I feel that if, you know, people will talk about their story um, as openly as you want them to. Yeah, that's awesome. I've had similar experiences. I've kind of started to delve into the storytelling realm and it's really fun too. So, and I didn't get to eat any Cincinnati chili like you did. So that was a little bonus. Um, I'll tell you, I, I, I did not taste a chili that I did not like. They're all a little bit different, but okay. you know, there was not any that I said, oh, this is not really. Did you, so I'm, I drink a little wine sometimes um, and I've had actually Nicholson's, I think downtown Cincinnati, there's a restaurant. I went there years ago during the day and got the sampler and I was the only one there with on a date and he explained all the different scotches to us. And it was the first time in my life I could tell the difference because I had someone, did you, are you now after writing this book, are you a true connoisseur of the different chilies? Can you taste and know, know which is which? I, I am because, you awesome. know, I sort of know, I sort of know what I'm looking for. That's and awesome. that's, you know, that's the key. Like I, same way I did a, a, a flight of vodkas. There's a, there was a new um, vodka restaurant in downtown that opened up before the pandemic. And I did four vodkas and each one of them was completely different. I'm like, who knew vodka could be such a exactly you know, such a variety of flavors? So chili is the same way. <laughs> awesome, especially Cincinnati chili. Well, all right, well, let's get into the, the history of Cincinnati chili a little bit. Um, why don't you just explain to us, uh, you know, I don't should redo your whole book or anything here, but explain to us the roots of, of Cincinnati chili because it is obviously very different than any other chili anywhere. It is. so. Cincinnati chili has a, um, a Greek and Macedonian uh, immigrant story. And it, it started in, um, or our story started in 1922, uh, three bro uh, brothers who had escaped the Balkan Wars in Macedonia, which is now a part of Greece. Uh, they left in the 19 teens and landed here in Cincinnati. And the oldest brother, Argiro Kirajev, um, was kind of, he had gotten into banking. And so he was able to get loans for immigrants who usually could not get loans from um, American banks. And his two younger brothers, Tom and John, um, started the Chili Parlor. And they started it in a one 
uh, screen theater and burlesque theater called the Empress Burlesque in 1922. It was a small little um, storefront within inside the, the, uh, the burlesque theater <laughs> and they were open late at night. So they, they had guaranteed foot traffic and um, they served chili on top of spaghetti, which they called uh, chili mac or chili. Mm -hmm. And they also served uh, cheese cone or conies without the cheese. And um, a couple of years later, a, a customer asked if they could serve cheddar cheese on the side. And it was so popular that they started putting it on and the cheese coney and the three-way was born. What, what I found interesting was, and I'd never, I'd heard the term, but I didn't know why that they call themselves chili parlors. And you want to explain a little bit why they call them that rather than restaurants? I found that kind of interesting because I never knew that. Yeah. So um, a parlor in the twenties um, kind of, it was a way of saying, we're not a full service restaurant. We don't have a full menu. We're not a short order diner, but we're a one step up from a sandwich shop um, by calling themselves a parlor. And it, it just meant, you know, it was a decent small restaurant that had a limited menu. And in yeah. this case, it was a chili menu. <laughs> chili yeah, because I remember going, moving to Cincinnati and hearing chili parlor and I, I kind of forgotten that I, I didn't get quite why they call them that, but it just became a matter of habit after a while. So, so you got these key players. Um, and did it take off right away, did, 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 or what? Did it was it a slow burn? I think it was it was probably a slow burn um, until word got out. I mean, here's here the, uh, these Greek newcomers in a largely Germanic mm -hmm. um, population who was more in tune with schnitzel and sauerbraten than they were with Mediterranean spiced meat yeah. sauce on top of noodles. Although uh, the Germans do have kind of like a sweet and sour meat sauce that goes on spetzel noodles, um, but it did take a while. But as, um, as the Karajifs um, hosted some of their immigrant, um, you know, other immigrants from the same area, they started, they started helping them open up other chili parlors in other neighborhoods. And so as these new Greek and Macedonian immigrants spread throughout the neighborhoods of Cincinnati and opened these small little chili parlors, people caught on, you know, it's a, it's a fast food for the time. It was one of the few places you could go and, and get fast food. It's delicious as those of us who have the crave know, and, you know, it just, it becomes part of your DNA. And, you know, as, as franchising expanded in the sixties, it really took off. And that's really when, um, you know, Skyline and Gold Star became powerhouses and, you know, marketed with the sports teams and, you know, marketed on TV. And so they really, you know, developed this brand that was already known within the neighborhoods, but then became even more well-known as it was you know, co-marketed with sports teams and things like that. Yeah. And I want to get into that a little bit later where we talk about the spread. One thing that kind of hit me as I was reading um, your book and also just doing a little research on internet, um, I've been very interested. I saw a movie called The Founder about McDonald's and oh, yeah, that's Ray Kroc and the McDonald's brothers and how there, there was a lot of, um, I don't know, bad blood at the end there. Um and I just, as I was reading about it, because it was the hundred year anniversary of Skyline, or I'm sorry, Cincinnati Chili, um, better habit there. Um, 
and there was no acrimony between the players. It was it was very interesting. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I, I didn't realize how connected they all were and how you mentioned that he was an immigrant and he loaned money. And it just seems like such a different kind of business that grew in so many different ways. Can you f- flesh out that a little bit? Yeah, the, the Karaja family actually helped set up chili parlors because it was a way of helping these immigrants who came, most of them, with nothing in their pockets. You know, an easy, low capital, um, you know, way to, to start a, a, a life and a business. And in fact, um, the, uh, the son of the founder, one of the founders of Empress Chili, uh, Johnny Karajif Jr., uh, told me that as a little boy, he went with his father the day before Nicholas Lombardini's opened Skyline Chili because he invited them to, to come and say, you know, see if he was missing anything. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and they had dinner with each other. All these chili parlor owners still go to the same Greek, the one Greek Orthodox church in Cincinnati, oh, wow. um, St. Nicholas, which by the way, has the best food festival every June. I, I don't know how I missed that when I was down there. I was reading about that in your book and I was like, oh my God, how did I miss that? My eight years of living. Oh my God. These, these Nona's make from scratch all this wonderful Greek food and pastry. Yeah. So they, they lived together, they played together, they worshiped together, and there was no animosity. In fact, in my book, I have what I call the Cincinnati Chili Family Tree. And I trace all of the chili parlors and the owners who worked at uh, Empress Chili before they went off and started their own chili parlor. And every chili parlor that's in existence today can trace the roots back to Empress through someone that worked there. So that tells you, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't this animosity. It wasn't this um, competition, um, at least early on, you know, in in the early days. And, And really why it became what it was is because it spread through, not through animosity and competition, but through, you know, helping, you know, in collaboration. So that's kind of, that's kind of the cool story behind it. The other thing is that having started in a burlesque theater, um, that sort of gave all these other chili parlors a, you know, a good way to locate their chili parlor, you know, hey, either inside a, one of these popular movie theaters in a neighborhood or steps from it. And so a lot of the early chili parlors actually, like Empress, took on the name of the movie theater that they were by. So uh, there was a park chili in Northside that was by the park theater. The Liberty Chili was near the Liberty Theater. The 20th Century Chili Parlor was inside the 20th Century Theater. So a lot of those type of um, early chili parlors, you know, popped up around the the old move, the one screen movie theaters that almost every neighborhood had at one time. Well, somebody who used to go to the Neon Movie Theater, I think it was called, on Ludlow, and discovered Cincinnati chili at the Ludlow skyline. I wonder if that was, was it, was that the similar situation or was that just happenstance, you know? Uh, so that you're, I think you're thinking of the Esquire theater. Esquire, sorry. Ludlow. Neon is up in Dayton. Yeah. I'm sorry. But get Neon's old. in Dayton. Yeah. yeah sorry. But about what's, that. what's interesting about the Ludlow um, skyline, which is the oldest continually operating franchise location of skyline. It was immortalized two years ago in a Simpsons episode. I missed that. Prince, Principal Skinner came to Cincinnati for a principal's conference and they they ate at that Ludlow skyline and they you know they they had the 
it, you know, the, they did a great job of, of the outside, but they yeah. didn't get the chili right. They made them in these big, like deep bowls and it didn't oh. have cheese on top of it. And they were swirling it like linguine. You know, they didn't cut it with a knife and fork. Oh no. They did not. Yeah. So they were, they were, a, it was a little bit of a heli, you know, a helicopter piece, but Hey, we got, we got the outside right. So yeah. Well, you, you talk about that in the book and even in the nineties, there was a waitress. I remember her cause we would go in there squeaky squeaky yeah. that's right squeaky we would go in there and i can't remember the guy at the door but i i literally reading your book i brought back some pretty awesome memories yeah um well that that's just so cool so you would you, you'd say that's kind of unique because you're a big historian you know the way this this cooperation that's a pretty unique thing for a for a restaurant i think would, would you not say yeah i mean smart you know smart cities understand that a rising tide helps all you know oh, and so um you know, I, I think that collaboration helps to expand an industry, not to, yes. you know, to restrict anybody. So e even today, like, um, you know, when restaurants help each other out or they, you know, they, the, the more people using a local supply chain, the better off that farmer, that little farmer is. And absolutely, the more, the more you can keep everything local and, and fresh and you know, well, I think in pop culture too, that just these days there's so many documentaries about the cola wars or the chip wars. And I think we get that image, but really that just, there is a whole other side to it, I guess. And that's what I thought found so refreshing. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you've talked about the key players. Um, were you surprised when you were writing this book? You're a Cincinnati native. You probably, you, you have the crave, as you said. What was the biggest surprise you had as you're writing this book? Like, wow, I had no idea. Or was there a moment like that? Well, so one of the myths that I continue to try to dispel is that there is chocolate in Cincinnati chili. Right. Because outsiders are like, why the heck in the world would you put chocolate in, in chili? And I agree with them. But about 30 years ago, there was a... Um, a writer for the Cincinnati Enquirer, and she thought that she had cracked the code on Skyline Chili's recipe. And she said that there was cocoa or chocolate in Cincinnati Chili. And ever since then, people think, you know, they see that and they're like, ah, oh, they put chocolate in their chili. How weird is that? And it's not true. Every single owner that I interviewed, they did reveal, they might not have revealed the full spice blend, but they all said there is no chocolate in Cincinnati Chili. Yeah, it's funny because when I, I mentioned uh, before we started this to Dan that I had put a post on my Facebook page and there was a British exchange student who's back in Britain that we were friends and she literally asked that question. Isn't that the place that put the chocolate in the ah. chili? And I was like, no, no, I don't think so. Yeah. So it's funny you bring that up. Um, that That's cool. Um, so so we've got these these people cooperating. It's kind of a Cincinnati a thing. You've got uh, Empress was the start and then... Yeah. Skyline was the next next kind of big one, or can you want to well, go, go so, through the? Um, I know you mentioned a lot of parlors in here, so I don't want to overlook anybody. There, there were a lot of independent parlors that opened between 1922. Skyline opened in 1949, so okay. over 20 years later, and there were, you know, hundreds of small little parlors that had opened between them. Um, so, but Skyline was the next biggest one. They're the ones that you know. They're, they have about 100 locations, and then about 20 more years later, in 1965, 63 rather, is when Gold Star opened, and they're the other big powerhouse, yeah. and they have they have almost as many locations as, as Skyline does. So, 
yeah, the, I mean, those are the two big powerhouses that kind those of old people would know. Yeah, yeah. Outside, of, outside of Cincinnati for sure would know. Now, I was always curious because I, I, I've, I've been to both and I like them both. I, but I was always more skyline because I lived in Clifton and it was right there. And Cincinnati is kind of a big city. It's, it's spread out in different neighborhoods. Are, are there different, and maybe this is in your book, are there different like areas? Because I remember one of the Bengals was talking, well, I grew up a gold star kid and another guy. Is, is there like different geographic parts of the city that tend to go to one parlor or the other, or is it? You know, I, um, I've tried to do sort of market research. Every time I do a book event, I'll, I'll poll people like, you know, what's your chip, what's your favorite chili? What, what sure. part of town are you from? And there's no rhyme or reason. No rhyme or reason. There's really, it's really what you grew up on, yeah. you know, but oddly enough, I did, there is um, some data that you can go to either a Skyline or a Gold Star uh, from any neighborhood. There, or there is a Gold Star or Skyline location three to five miles from anyone in Cincinnati, no matter where you are. Wow. So that's, I mean, that's pretty significant. <laughs> yeah, well, it's again, not to inject myself into it, but we went down to uh, Cincinnati uh, last summer for a couple of days and I, I had forgotten how ubiquitous skylines and gold stars were. I was like, oh, we got to find one. And like, after we were there for a couple of days, I'm like, oh my God, you can't throw a stone. Why was I worried about finding one? They're, they're everywhere. So yeah. I've forgotten how popular and again, because going to school, there's a little different than living in, in the suburbs, but it was pretty, pretty amazing how they're everywhere. Gold star and um, skyline. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit about what, what I found interesting. Again, I wish I had gotten a little deeper in your book and maybe we'll have to do a follow-up when I finish. Um, you mentioned that you can get, I, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but if you're in Bethlehem, I believe you can get, um, was it Gold Star or it was it neither? Was it a different yeah. brand? Yeah. So the story is that one of the, there were four founding brothers from Jordan, Jordan. who founded Gold Star. And one of the sons of one of the founders moved back to Jordan and started a chain called Chili House. Chili House, that's it. With Gold, with gold Star Chili's recipe. And they serve three ways, four ways. They serve cheese conies. And they, they started becoming popular and they opened up in Iran, Iraq, and Jordan. And there's one near Bethlehem. So you can have a cheese coney and you can see where Jesus Christ was born. At that blew me away. Home. Yeah. I mean, isn't that amazing? It really is. That was really, that was something I was reading. The, wow. Um, so kind of, can you walk me through a little bit of um, how how it spread outside of Cincinnati to now, I believe, according to your book, it's in every state and multiple countries. How did, how, what was the timeline? What was the progression around that, if you, if you know? Well, so it hasn't really, it, it's not in every state. Oh, okay. it is, um, it's in a couple of states, uh, Florida. Uh, there were a couple locations opened in Florida of Skyline because um, the the brothers, two of the brothers moved down to Florida when they sort of retired. Um, there actually, there's since been a Cincinnati chili restaurant by that name that opened in Orlando, Florida in the last okay. few years. But um, actually outside of 275 Loop in Cincinnati, it's it's hard to gain traction. Okay. Um, and both the Skyline and, and Gold Star tried to franchise outside about as far away as we go is towards Indianapolis. And then east uh, in Claremont County, there's actually one in um, Amish country. And I am, 
I'm going to be the first to catch an Amish person eating a cheese coney on a fence. You got to you got to get um, a picture of that and then yeah, post it. That that will make a great picture for any chili follow up. But yeah, it's it because it took because it took such a while to get traction in Cincinnati and because it's so darn weird. It people is. people don't get it. It's almost like now calling it chili is is a bad marketing thing because people are like, that's not chili. Yeah. But, you know, you would think people would have a, an open mind that chili is kind of whatever you make of it. Everybody's put it really is though. up in chili. So chili is just a spicy meat sauce, you know? <laughs> and why there are so many haters of Cincinnati chili, I'll never get it. But well, I, you know, the Bengals played Tennessee last week and yeah. um, there was a thing floating around the internet that said why the Titans lost. And it was a bunch of Titans fans holding up a sign. I think it said, you may have seen this and it said I did. Cincinnati chili isn't real chili or something, something along those lines. And this is why they lost. So I, I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, People we're very protective. People are very protective of it. Um, do you know, and I didn't know if you got to this in the book, but as you know, SIFT, we deal a lot with food production. Um, and one thing I do know, like GSR and Gold Star and Skyline do, they do can and they produce, process their, their chili and they do ship it around the country. Do you know much about the history of that or the background of when they started doing that and how successful it's been? Yeah, so that was, um, that actually predates the franchising. So okay. some of the early, so Empress, um, started with Kroger in the early 60s before they, Gold Star and Skyline, started franchising. Um, and there were other chili parlors as well and other um, canned soup companies that saw the popularity of it and started canning it in the 50s and 60s. And so some of them, like um, Worth More Chili, has been canning Cincinnati chili for uh since the fifth, so 65, close to 70 wow. years. Empress has been doing that since the early 60s. So, you know, that they, they saw the popularity and they said, hey, well, people can buy this in the grocery store and make it at home. You know, it's pretty easy. It's, it's not that, you know, once you've got the chili, all you got to do is put it over spaghetti. The noodles and some mild cheddar. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, they've yeah. been doing that for a long time. Well, what's interesting to me is I, 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 as someone who's from Ohio, grew up here, but lived a, a lot of other places, other countries, other states, I meet people from Ohio everywhere. There's something about Ohio. I feel huh. like we, we're almost a diaspora. Wherever you go, you can you know say OH and IO or you'll see it. Um, so has that, has that helped the spread of it, do you think? Or is there any tie to people, Ohioans moving on and then transplants starting or trends? Yeah, that, there? that has happened. There was a... Um... Actually, there is a, a an expat Cincinnatian um, in Chicago that opened up a Cincinnati chili restaurant. Uh, there was one in New York City. This uh, this restaurant in Orlando, I'm not sure, but I, I have suspicion that they're also from Cincinnati or have Cincinnati ties. Sure. So yeah, as people move out of the city, you know, they they, you know, when they come back, they want it. But when they're out, you know, where they've made new homes they still want to have what they you know what they ate in Cincinnati so it's kind of like the immigrant story you know as Cincinnatians move to other parts of the country they want to bring their their culinary culture with them 
Well, I think it goes back to what you just you said at the beginning, like you traced your family through your food because I, yeah. I, I lived in Japan a long time. And man, if I could find a box of Kraft macaroni and cheese, you know, I, over ah. there and my wife right. is Japanese and we're here now. And if she can find something called natto, which I, mm. I can't eat, if it's fermented soybeans, she's super happy. You know, so that you, you bring that with you wherever you go. So I, I agree. And I think that's kind of cool. And I maybe we can talk about that in another podcast because I know you've written a lot of books uh, on this. Um so tell me all these stories, all these people you, you mentioned to me before we we met that some of these people had passed on since you wrote the book and how fortunate you felt to have met them. Um, you want to mention any of those people in particular, or is there any particular story that you you really just enjoyed about Cincinnati chili in its history? Was there something that was your favorite or up there when your top couple? Um, you know, I think the the fun stories like talking to um the Lombronides family of Skyline, learning who the first customer was, how they um, how they started a relationship with the company that makes their chili buns. Oh. They, uh, and that's that would that's a an interesting um, factory visit. Is this company that makes their chili buns here in Cincinnati? That's all they do. They're a bakery that all they make is chili buns for cheese conies. Oh, wow. I might have to find this place because I can never find the buns up here in Toledo. That's a big challenge, to be honest with you. Yeah. So but, can you tell a little bit about it or is that a too long of a story? Well, they're, they're actually another Greek family that was, um, they had connections to other chili parlors. And, um, you know, they, they just saw this, um, the, the wieners that they were using for chili, for cheese conies were, not the right size for the buns that they were getting, you know, commercially. So they're like, Hey, we need to, you know, I'm sure it was over a, an Uzo or a beer or something. <laughs> Uzo, hey, God, I forgot about hey, it. So. We, you know, we, we have this problem. Our, our, the sausages that we use are too small for our Coney buns. And then, yeah. <laughs> you know, a business is born kind of. Thing. Yes. Over an Opa. So, <laughs> yeah. Right. Opa. So, um, yeah, a lot of those type of stories and, um, you know, every, like I said, every family has an interesting story of where they came from and, um, you know, just the hearing stories about the, the community and getting together around food and, you know, these Nonas, these uh, Greek grandmothers, man, they can make some Christmas cookies that will change your life, you know. Well, Dan, I may have to hit you up for a place to stay and bring my family down for that next family festival. You're going to regret it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'll take you around. I'll, I'll get you on the inside of uh, the Greek community. Awesome. Well, um, I really liked that you you went with um, I'm etymology. I'm saying that right. Um, I like that idea. So tell me, has has Cincinnati chili had some sort of effect broader on the food scene, do you think beyond Cincinnati has it had any impact, or or even not maybe Cincinnati chili, but just that that ripple effect from that initial something else? What I, you know, what I think the importance of the Cincinnati chili market outside of Cincinnati is this honor of regional foods. So, as an etymo etymologist, etymologist. Um, I you know I'm also a food preservationist because. There are what I call endangered foods, especially in Ohio, that are these regional foods that have come with a certain immigrant group that don't have necessarily restaurant backings, and the people that know how to make it are sort of dying off. 
And so how do you preserve these foods if it's not you know, embraced by the local chef scene, restaurants, or food, or food festivals, you know? And so there are a lot of foods like that in Ohio. And I think that's important. And I think that there is a movement within chefs to preserve those foods and bring those heritage foods back into restaurants and honor them and honor the history behind them. So, you know, maybe Cincinnati chili is not um, responsible for that, but it certainly brings notice that each city has its own regional specialty that, you know, sure. should be honored and, you know, uh, preserved as, as much as a building or, you know, an artifact or, or something like that. Cause that's, you know, that's our, that's our culinary history. That's our culture. Oh, I agree so much. And I, I think, you know, being an Ohio guy, there's so many things like that throughout Ohio. Um, even up here, it's not quite as unique as, but we've got Tony Paco's up here and of you know, course, it's been yeah. here forever and you go get there and you get your cabbage rolls. And, um, so I agree. I, I think it's really awesome. You're doing that and, and writing this and these books. Um, we can probably wrap it up soon. I just maybe I'd like to maybe finish with, um, is there, is there anything else that you think, I guess, is interesting about Cincinnati chili? I mean, if you, if you had to, a Martian came down and said, what is this, you know, or, you know, how would you explain Cincinnati chili, I guess, to somebody who doesn't know? Cause it, people do get confused by it. I mean. Yeah, it's, so it's, we call it chili, but it's really a Mediterranean meat sauce on top of noodles yes. with cheese. <laughs> And it's super delicious. It's super delicious. The only thing is that my kids were twirling it. And I guess I've got to, after reading oh. your book, I forgot, I forgot you're not supposed to twirl it. So I've got to teach yeah. them. You've got to cut I've, to get every layer in the bite. Yeah. Although my wife's Japanese, she ate hers with chopsticks. So I don't know. Oh, I don't know. That I, don't know. That I would like to see. That yeah, would be so Maybe one. a little mixture of culture there. So, uh, um, well, well, thank you so much, Dan. I really appreciate you uh, joining us today. Um, I would love Likewise. to have you, if you have time down the road to talk about when some of these other subjects that you're such an expert in. And uh, uh, I hope you have a really great day. And, and thanks again for joining us. And everybody who's listening, there, there'll be a link to Dan's book and blog in the description for this podcast. So thanks a lot, Dan. Thank you. It was fun. You have been listening to Food Stories, the podcast, a production of SIFT. We appreciate your support. If you have any food processing stories you would like to share, reach out to us at info at siftinnovation.org. And be on the lookout for our next episode coming next month, telling some more of these fascinating and important stories. Until then, stay well and stay fed. <laughs>